Attention riders, for your safety, please keep your hands, feet, and face inside the vehicle at all times. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. For the first time since August, we will not be covering a Saw film. Instead, we are talking about Ari Aster's 2018 horror film, Hereditary. Now, before we head into the review, let's go over the remaining three weeks of October. Next week, we'll be reviewing Disney's Hocus Pocus, a fan favorite that a lot of people have asked me to cover, and I'm finally bringing it to you. I'm excited about next week's episode. Followed afterwards by Disney's other Halloween holiday classic, The Nightmare Before Christmas. And then, to close out the month, we have the live adaptation of the video game Five Nights at Freddy's. I also wanted to mention that October 14th is my birthday, so I may or may not be hungover for that Hocus Pocus recording. As such, I'm going to postpone my recording from my usual Sunday time frame to Monday, so expect to see that review by Tuesday at the latest. Now, before we also go any further, I want to preface this episode by letting you know that there will be no post-credit spoiler discussion today. Due to the age of the film, every plot detail will be sprinkled throughout our episode. So if you haven't seen Hereditary, this is your opportunity to go watch it on Max and then come back to the podcast. There's a lot to cover with this film, and I can't wait to get into it. So without further ado, let's light a candle hold hands, and summon my review of Hereditary. In 2018's Hereditary, when the matriarch of the Graham family passes away, her daughter and grandchildren begin to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry, trying to outrun the sinister fate that they have inherited. Hereditary is directed and written by Ari Aster, known for Midsommar, and Bo is Afraid. This is actually his film debut. It stars Tony Collette as Annie Graham, Millie Shapiro as Charlie Graham, Gabriel Byrne as Stephen Graham, and then Alex Wolfe as their son Peter Graham. To say that I've never seen this film before is a bit embarrassing, I'm going to be honest. All among the film society, Hereditary has a reputation of being one of the best original horror films of the past 30 years. And some of my favorite film reviewers on YouTube, such as like Dan Merle, Chris Stuckman, Jeremy Johns, etc., they all hold this film in high esteem. Dan Merle even went as far as to say that this was his favorite film of 2018, and he was championing Tony Collette's performance for an Oscar. I don't know, perhaps I was a weirdo about it, but I've always put off this movie for the longest time because... I guess in the promotional stills, I got a little bit triggered by Toni Collette's appearance. (laughs) You know, I constantly saw that image of her just screaming at the top of her lungs, just crying and menacing. And I thought, like, man, is that all she does in this film? Like, I don't want to sit through a movie where she's just screaming and yelling for the entire two-hour runtime. It's kind of crazy, man. Uh, And I know, I know how stupid that sounds. I'm basically going into the film thinking I'm going to hate it just because of the facial expression of one actress. It's it's really dumb. What makes it even weirder for me is that 
2018 kind of symbolized my love for independent horror films. I was never really a big horror guy, but in 2018, there was also the release of Alex Garland's Annihilation. If you guys remember that film, perhaps I'm going to review it one of these weeks, but Annihilation stood out for me as being one of the best, creepiest horror films that year, and I was blown away by it. And so it makes no sense to me why I didn't go out and watch Hereditary when it came out in 2018. I'm an idiot for for not doing that. (laughs) I should have listened to everyone's recommendation and gone out and seen this movie. It's been a long ride, but I finally have gotten down to sit down and watch Hereditary. And I just want to thank everyone who recommended this film to me. I knew I needed an extra episode in October, so this episode was either going to be Scream 5, Scream 6... Hereditary, or I forgot what the other one was. I think I was thinking of doing a Corpse Bride, since we were going to do all these Disney Halloween films anyway. But I'm glad you guys recommended this. I can proudly now say that I've officially seen Hereditary, and it's time that I can give you my full Fletch review. So let's get into it. Let's go to Act 2. Right off the bat, I find it a bit hard to categorize Hereditary. Is it a ghost movie? Is it a religious horror film? Is it a family drama? I say it's all three. (laughs) The film revolves around the death of Ellen Graham, whose obituary sets the tone for the entire events that are uh, transpiring on screen here. It mentions that she had a difficult life dealing with the death of her husband due to voluntary starvation, pretty brutal way of dying, and her brother hanging himself. Her family's mental health is just one major issue with the Graham family. The other major issue is that, oh yeah, she's a freaking Satanist. (laughs) Oh my god, I did not know what to expect going into this movie. I did not think that we were going to go into the occult and uh, satanic worshipping, but that's what this movie deals with. It's fucking crazy. Now, Ellen's dealings with King Payman and the supernatural has left a lingering secret that haunts her daughter Annie and granddaughter Charlie. Annie, of course, is played by Tony Collette, and then Charlie is played by Millie Shapiro. I want to say this right now. The fact that Tony Collette didn't receive a single Academy Award nomination for her role as Annie is fucking criminal. What she does in this film is absolutely amazing and it's probably her best work ever put to screen tony collette delivers a powerhouse of a performance in this movie in any scene she can quickly turn her emotions on a dime like that going from tragic and grieving mother to an absolute psychopath manic angry and even at one point she gets possessed it's fucking crazy what she does on here it is both a mentally exhausting performance to watch and physically too. Some of the things that she has to do, especially towards the later half of this film are incredible. And she really personified what this movie is all about. And that is about mental torture and lingering torment of your family's history. I want to highlight one specific scene that stood out to me for Tony Collette. And that is the scene where she loses Charlie 
And she begins wailing just at the top of her lungs. She starts screaming and says she wants to die. And it's so horrific and it's tragic. And the pain you feel just from her voice. Because for this shot in particular, it doesn't actually linger on Tony Collette's body as she's writhing in pain. It's actually lingering on her son Peter's perspective. So it's a wide-angle shot that pans from Tony Collette over to Peter, and you just hear her voice just screeching and graveling, and she's beginning to lose it. And it's just, wow, there's so much power and emotion in the pain that Tony Collette is bringing in this single scene. So to compartmentalize the mental anguish that a person has to go through to see their child die before them. It's heartbreaking. It's really tragic. And Tony Collette's guttural instinct to bend over and cry and scream, it feels real to me. It feels authentic. And I absolutely loved what Tony Collette brought to this film. Her despair just rings throughout the house and you see it even in Peter's eyes as he sees his mother just writhing on the ground. He is blankly staring at her, broken, tortured. Just this movie has some amazing performances. And if you're going into this movie expecting a slasher horror film, that's not this is not it for you, Chief. This is a character piece and a study of the mental breakdown between this family. And I absolutely adored Tony Collette's performance here. I was wrong all those years ago when I said I didn't want to watch this film. Simply because the way she looked while she was screaming kind of put me off from the whole experience. But when you're in the moment and you're immersed into the story, her performance really stands out. And it is a remarkable achievement for her. I'm honestly kind of pissed off that she didn't get an Oscar nomination now. <laughs> I can really see what everyone said about her in this movie, and it's it sucks. It really does suck. I don't think the scene would have been as impactful if it weren't for the fine establishment of the character Charlie. Now, Charlie is a 13-year-old girl who has been proclaimed as being wrongfully born as a female, and we'll get back to that in the later half of the episode. Her mother doesn't hold it against her. But her grandmother sure did. Charlie is a troubled child. She has some really dark, creepy thoughts and feelings. She decapitates and reassembles objects and toys. And she keeps a notepad of twisted drawings. And in one of the final scenes that Charlie is given, she actually goes up to the corpse of a dead pigeon and cuts its head off using a pair of scissors. Charlie is made even more creepy and twisted with just the little nuances in Millie's performance here. She does this weird little click with her mouth. It sounds like, like that. <laughs> I remember I, I used to make this sound a lot when I, I used to play baseball as a kid in my backyard. It would go something like this. And that's a deep drive into left field. Mike Piazza hits a home run and it is gone. <laughs> I don't know why, but her clicks kind of just sparked that memory in my mind. <laughs> but but seriously, though, kudos to Millie Shapiro on her performance as Charlie. Because we got to spend a little bit of time with her, her death in the middle of this movie is fucking brutal. <laughs> and yeah, Charlie's on-screen role is very short, however. But to my surprise, 
Her death is insane. I did not expect this coming at all. She gets fucking beheaded in the first act of the film. Holy shit. And Millie Shapiro is heavily featured on the marketing. I thought she was going to be a bigger role in the film on screen. I mean, she has a bigger role in the film um, just by her presence alone. But like the 20 or 30 minutes that we get with this character, when she finally gets beheaded, it's it's insane. We've been talking all month about the first rule of horror is that you need to establish that you care about a character before you kill them off. And this really fits that bill. And Ari Aster did something insane with this. I, I, I haven't seen a child death like this on screen in a very long time. And I was shocked. I even had to kind of pause the movie for a couple minutes just to kind of recollect my thoughts about what the fuck just happened. But let's go over how it happens. Charlie has an allergic reaction to a nut-filled chocolate cake at a party. Peter lies his way into getting into this high school party by telling his mom that it's going to be a barbecue or whatever. But when Charlie eats the cake, she has an allergic reaction, and now Peter must rush her to the hospital. On the way to the party, we see a light pole. And it's a kind of weird shot because it has like this symbol carved into the side of it. The symbol was seen earlier in the film on a necklace that Ellen was wearing in her casket. That light pole ends up being the crux and the inciting incident of this entire film. As Peter is driving to the hospital, there's a deer carcass in the middle of the road. At the same time, Charlie is struggling to breathe, so she sticks her head out the window to get some air. Peter then must maneuver around the deer carcass, and Charlie, unfortunately with her head out the window, gets beheaded by that same light post. It's unbelievable. It's shocking. It's one of the most shocking film deaths I've seen in a very long time. Not only was I unaware that this happened in the film, but it was the first time that I've seen a child get killed so brutally on screen like this. And to make it all worse, Peter's reaction is kind of the cherry on the cake. He's stunned and traumatized of what just transpired. He knows what had just happened, but he doesn't want to look back. Alex Wolf's performance kind of takes over at this moment. He's not saying a thing. He's just looking straight ahead, his eyes full of tears. He only shares a couple glances in the rearview mirror to confirm that his worst fears have come to fruition. He silently just shakes, cries, and then goes home and crawls into bed. The sequence of events is traumatizing. I can't even imagine the devastation and damage that something like this can cause, especially for Peter, since he was responsible for her death. He was the reason why she was there with him at the party in the first place. He lied to his mom about the party, and then he had to bring her along, and this is what happened. What I love the most about the film is the amount of foreshadowing and allegoric storytelling that is laced throughout the runtime. Charlie's obsession with beheading toys, animals, and figurines quietly references the fate that we would see happen to her. And as the family buried their daughter, the Grams begin to fall apart. Annie's grief is too overwhelming so that she doesn't want to talk to her husband about it. Peter is too traumatized to indulge in his high school proclivities, like smoking weed and getting laid. And then Steve, who's the only level-headed member of the family that's trying to keep everyone together, that ultimately comes to a head when Annie's resentment for Peter leads into another standout scene for me. And that is the dinner sequence. Once again, 
Tony Collette gives an Oscar-worthy performance here with a monologue as she expresses that Peter, albeit not at fault for Charlie's death, is responsible for lying to her, for judging her, and destroying their relationship as a mother and son. Ari Aster's writing really shines in the performances of its lead actors here. You can tell that each character doesn't necessarily hate one another, but there is a lot of clear resentment and hostility there that's too big to overcome. The film handles the themes of grief, generational mental illness, and family history so well, and this dinner scene is the culmination of all of that at once. These characters must overcome the challenges of being in an inescapable loop of trauma, left over from their grandparents and parents. So in their desperation, Annie turns to a woman named Joan for assistance in handling their grief. Joan takes her in almost like a grief counselor, and you kind of get the suspicion that there's something nefarious going on here. Joan is too happy, she's too welcoming of Annie, but I did not expect Joan to be the harbinger of a satanic ritual. <laughs> Holy shit, man, this movie really goes for it. Joan is so welcoming and so friendly. She does give off that vibe of the neighbor next door, so to speak. But it's just amazing that throughout all this like shit that's going on, she's the one that starts the downfall of the family at the end. <laughs> I love the way that Aster laced the entire movie with subtle hints towards the conclusion. The necklace symbol that I mentioned before, the light pole, Joan's welcome mat also had the symbol... There's photos of Ellen and Joan together, both wearing the symbol as well. And then there's also a ton of ritualistic messages and carvings on the ground that kind of point to this cult-like vibe that was going on with Ellen before she died. And I like the fact that we don't actually get flashbacks to how Ellen was when she was alive, because it just kind of paints an image in your mind about how fucked up and twisted this woman was to leave this all for her children and grandchildren. Before we get to the aspects of the film that I disliked, and I'm going to be honest, there's not a lot of them, I want to mention how batshit crazy the final 20 minutes of this film are. <laughs> it goes for it, man. Like, this is what a lot of people take away for this film going forward, and it's insane. Now, through Joan, Annie witnesses a medium seance, and Joan is able to talk to her son in the afterlife. Because of that, Annie begins to toy with this idea of conjuring Charlie's spirit back to the family. And she begins to have a bit of a mental nosedive as well. She starts to become a tool manipulated into this ritual. And finally, it comes to a head when Annie invites Peter and Stephen downstairs and they both complete the ritual. It appears like Charlie comes to them all in a sequence. Steve is freaked out. He doesn't want to have any part of this. Peter is crying and devastated over what is happening. He's completely confused and terrified. And ultimately, when Annie completes the ritual, she then becomes a tool of King Payman, the eighth king of hell. Towards the final 20 minutes of the movie, this is some of the things that she does. Now that she's been possessed, Annie begins Spider-Manning her way across the walls and ceiling. <laughs> the creepy-ass people from Ellen's funeral all appear nude throughout the house. Stephen gets set on fire, and then Peter smashes his face into the desk of his classroom and breaks his own nose. The horror element of this movie has, all the way up until this point, been pretty subdued. 
There were obviously creepy shots scattered throughout the film. Shots of Ellen in the room when Annie was working. Charlie appearing to Peter in the middle of the night and her head falls off. And there's the shot of Charlie, of course, cutting off the pigeon's head. But in this final act, the movie goes fully off the deep end and it becomes a supernatural slasher of sorts. The two most horrifying shots in the entire film happen between a matter of minutes. The first one was when Annie is pursuing Peter. She chases him up into the attic and he locks the hatch behind him. Annie then begins pounding on the hatch and you're thinking like, oh, okay, well, she's just banging on it. No, it cuts to a shot of her hanging from the ceiling, banging her head into it like a head basher. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It's so fucking terrifying. <laughs> And the second horrifying shot that really stood out to me was when Annie was floating above the attic and you hear this subtle like So Peter, too horrified to look up, eventually decides to look up. Annie is up, floating above Peter. She has a piano wire in her hand and she is cutting through her neck. Until she starts to quicken the pace and eventually Annie saws off her own head with a piano wire. I don't think I've ever seen anything so disturbing as this turn of events. I literally paused the movie for a second to figure out what the fuck I was watching. Peter then throws himself out of the attic window and we see Annie's body float towards the treehouse in the back of the house. But as I'm sitting there thinking about what the fuck I just watched... I couldn't help but feel this odd sensation of relief. There's something odd about it. And so the movie diverts from being a horror film at this point, And now it's starting to get back into just the supernatural mystery behind it all. Peter wakes up from falling down off the attic window. And you notice something different about him. He doesn't seem like the same character. He seems surprised and shocked, but he's not horrified. He's not scared. There's a little bit of a calm confidence to him, strangely. I know if that were me and I saw my mom's headless body floating towards a treehouse, I would run the fuck the other way. <laughs> but but for Peter, he follows it. He goes directly to the treehouse. I guess the symbolism behind all the headless corpses is that these decapitations needed to happen for the release of King Payman. It's why Ellen's corpse was dug up in the middle of the film and was decapitated. Her body was then thrown into the attic. And it's also why Charlie had to lose her head on the light pole. And now it's finally why Annie has to cut off her own head while she's possessed. The release of King Payman predicates on the decapitation of its subjects. Now I mentioned at the top of the episode that Charlie was told that she was originally supposed to be a boy. Annie wanted Charlie to be a boy, hence why her name is Charlie. This whole ritual is basically a redo for Charlie. Her spirit has been hinted at as being prevalent across the entire movie. Peter's body is now going to be the subject of Charlie's resurrection, or King Payman's resurrection, so to speak. Charlie is King Payman. It's why she's been cutting off the heads of pigeons. It's why she's been reassembling things. It makes all perfect fucking sense. 
And so when Peter finally goes up to the treehouse, he notices that Charlie's rotting head is placed on top of a mannequin. All the cultists are bent over and worshiping Charlie. And Peter stands in front of her. They present him with a crown. He looks on with a calm confidence about him again. And then Joan says, Hail King Payman, eighth king of hell. And we get the end of the film. Charlie and King Payman have been resurrected and they are finally on Earth. The ambiguous ending kind of leaves me wondering, okay, what the fuck is going to happen next? Is he going to bring an apocalypse into the world? It's crazy. It's batshit crazy. And I think a lot of people didn't really like the ending of this film because of how ambiguously dour it is. But when I sat there and I thought, what the fuck just happened? It all kind of came back to me. And that's the beauty of this film. This movie will sit with you for a while. It's so intricate, it's metaphorical, and it's cryptic in its messaging that it kind of encourages you to re-watch it a couple times. I even had to watch a few YouTube videos before I did this episode to solidify my initial understanding of what the picture meant, all the allegories and metaphors, and just ultimately what the ending meant. After all the research and after I sat with my thoughts for a bit, I really love this movie. <laughs> I didn't expect to gravitate to it so strongly, coming from where I was before I watched it, but I love this movie. I had originally put off watching it because I thought it would be overrated and overhyped, but nah. This movie is a beautifully crafted modern horror classic. This is a must-watch if you love horror films. It's more psychological than slasher, and it's just absolutely gripping from minute one all the way to the end. That's not to say that there are a few flaws with the film. Let's talk about the things I didn't like about Hereditary. This segment is going to be pretty short and sweet, since, as I've gushed about already, I really enjoyed this film. If there are a couple things I can nitpick, I would mention the fact that it is a very slow burn, so if you're not paying attention to it, or if you have the attention span of a goldfish, you're going to miss a lot. And even though the movie takes its time getting its feet on the ground, you must really lock onto what is going on. There are quick insert shots that you may miss that end up being important at the end. A lot of people will get bored and confused by it, and I get it. You really do have to concentrate on this movie when you're watching it. It's immersive in that way. You have to also be open-minded to it being a slow burn. It is a very dialogue-driven film. It's not all about slashing and blood and guts. There's a reputation going on with A24. I love A24 Studios. They had just won the Oscar for Best Picture for Everything Everywhere All at Once. So there's this increasing reputation that A24 films are beginning to feel a bit pretentious to people. And as I mentioned, I personally love A24, so these aren't the feelings of my own. But I've noticed that the general audiences are having a pushback against the studio because of this pretentiousness. And for this film in particular, it's a bit justified. Hereditary is not going to win over general audiences. It has a lot of heavy-handed imagery and misdirects. It is a slow burn, as I mentioned. But right off the bat, the most pretentious part of Hereditary for me was all the insert shots of Annie's model art pieces. For the first act, I was really wondering what the hell was the purpose of all these models. She's made out to be this, like, artist, I think? I think that's what they said. She was selling these art pieces to an art museum or something. It wasn't very clear. And I was thinking to myself, who is she creating these for? What kind of museum is going to take a project that showcases Annie's dead daughter's head on the road? It's sort of bizarre. 
But there is an analogy for them. There is a metaphor about them. There's a reason why Ariaster made these model houses so prevalent in the storyline. The idea is that the models serve as a metaphor for Annie's compartmentalizing of her family trauma. It's like she takes her emotions and her trauma and boxes them into a little model house. And that by the end of the film, when she finally destroys them all, I think it's meant to symbolize that she is finally freed from the guilt of her past. However, it comes at a stage of her life where she is beginning to get manipulated by Payman's possession. If you take the model houses as a, as a literal MacGuffin, you're going to feel like the film is indulging in pretentiousness. But after studying the meaning behind the shots, I warmed up to it a little bit. But yeah, on my first initial viewing of this film, I thought it was kind of dumb that they would put so much attention into these. But it does make sense. If you're going into this movie expecting a straightforward ghost film, you're in for a bad time, as I've mentioned before. This is an insanely deep, thought-provoking, genre-bending horror film. And I believe that Hereditary is genuinely amazing. I can't believe I didn't give it a proper shot when it first came out, but I'm sure glad that I watched it now. Hereditary would get a nearly perfect 5 out of 5 rating for me, but given a little bit of the pretentiousness and small gripes, I think it's very deserving of a 4.5 out of 5. This is the sort of horror movie that will stick with you long after the credits roll. And if you're open-minded and can stomach a slow burn psychological mindfuck, Hereditary is definitely worth watching. And you can find it on Max right now. It's streaming for free with your subscription. So that's my review of Hereditary. Let's get to our third act of the episode and go over our filmmaking factoids. I mentioned that general audiences may find that Hereditary is a bit pretentious. That metric can actually be measured in its Rotten Tomatoes rating. <laughs> Currently on Rotten Tomatoes, Hereditary is holding a 90% certified fresh rating with critics. But the audience approval rating is only at 70%. There's a 20% difference between what critics thought of this movie and what audiences thought of this movie. I'm going to give you the positives first. So critics say that Hereditary uses its classic setup as the framework for a harrowing, uncommonly unsettling horror film whose cold touch lingers long beyond its closing credits. That's kind of the impression I got. This movie is definitely going to stick with me. <laughs> One thing I just learned today, and I think I might do this for most films going forward. Apparently on Rotten Tomatoes, audiences can rate films below a one-star rating. You can give a film a 0.5 rating. So out of curiosity, I dove into the toxic cesspool of the reviews, and here are what some very intelligent and thoughtful people had to say about Hereditary. <laughs> Starting off with Tatuba M writes, I do not understand why people love this movie. The plot was lazy and uninventive. The scariest thing was an animalistic woman crawling on the ceiling like we have seen people do in horror movies a million times. What was so auteur, ooh, big word, <laughs> and original about this? Using a little girl's strange face as horror? Please, inappropriate. Zero and a half stars. <laughs> uh, the next one I, I really liked. This one's funny. Guadalupe L says... Buena película, excelente. 
zero and a half stars. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if Guadalupe knows how the star meter works, but in Spanish, her comment means good, excellent movie. Zero and a half stars. <laughs> oh, man. I'm having a blast. This is fun. But my favorite review comes from Phoenix T, who writes, This movie sucked butt cheeks. It literally made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> build is so slow just for it to build up to nothing. Ending made no sense. Overall, crappy movie. It was more funny than scary. Zero and a half stars. <laughs> uh, that wasn't a misspeak either. He's, he wrote, it literally made no sense once soever. <laughs> but you see what I mean about goldfish level attention spans? If you went into this movie expecting jump scares, blood and guts galore, or a paranormal activity type movie, you're in for a bad time. That's not what this movie is about. Uh, so despite the amazing performances, writing, and directing, Hereditary was completely snubbed from the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes in 2018. It earned a total of zero nominations across the board from both award shows. Writing, directing, performances, editing, sound mixing, everything. It got shut out completely. And what was strange is that this movie actually got a lot of traction on the more smaller award circuits. Tony Collette won a Saturn Award for Best Performance for a Lead Actress, along with a Critics' Choice nomination for Best Performance for a Lead Actress. I wonder if the Academy and the Golden Globes had anything against Tony Collette. That kind of sucks. And that will bring us to the last part of our show. This will be our filmmaking factoids. Our first factoid of the day comes from Tony Collette herself. She had told her agent that she didn't want to do any more heavy, dark films and only wanted to do comedies. But she loved the script of Hereditary so much that she could not turn it down. And good on her. This movie really is a showcase of what she can do as an actor. The next one, Ari Aster wanted to go for scares that were emotionally justified rather than solely leaning on traditional horror jump scares. As I mentioned, this isn't a movie that's all about just throwing things at your face and trying to spook the hell out of you. This is more of a traumatizing emotional drama. And that's exactly what Ari Aster aimed for. This one's kind of cool. I, I really like this factoid. At around the one hour and six minute mark, to make the chalkboard ride on itself, the special effects team put a magnet in the chalk and put a magnet on the other side of the chalkboard to make it look as though the chalk was riding and making itself move. It was extremely difficult for the team to get the small magnet inside the chalk, but on screen it looks very smooth, and kudos to them. This same trick was actually done in the movie Matilda, <laughs> if you guys remember that movie. The next fact that I have is that the house was constructed completely on sets on a soundstage in Utah in order to follow Ari Aster's shot list. They needed to be able to remove walls and ceilings in order to shoot the rooms to look exactly like the miniatures. So they made a life-size miniature, so to speak. <laughs> oh, this one was actually pretty cool. So did you guys know that both Alex Wolf and Millie Shapiro actually had history together? They both had attended a professional children's film school and had already known each other before making this movie. 
their chemistry on screen is very prevalent, and I think it's because they go back quite a ways as actors and as people. Pretty neat. The final factoid of our episode. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Saw 5 was played before a showing of Megamind at a theater by accident. A similar incident occurred with this movie. One of the trailers for Hereditary was accidentally shown at the beginning of the PG-rated family film, Peter Rabbit. (laughs) This was done in Inaloo, Western Australia, and it caused a small panic in the theater. Parents were fleeing the cinema with their kids, and the theater eventually had to shut the screen off. Everyone who was in attendance ended up getting a complimentary movie pass to apologize for the mistake that happened. (laughs) Dude, I love shit like this. I I hope it happens more. I kind of wish that there was like a 10-minute intro to Saw 10 for Paw Patrol. (laughs) Kids really need to nut up these days. They're too sensitive. (laughs) They, They could stand 10 minutes of hereditary, right? So, with that, we are officially at the end of our Hereditary review. I want to know what you all thought of it. Let me know on social media. You can find the show on Instagram and Twitter with the same username on both. It is PCWithGill. And if you haven't already, please share the show and tell a friend. Post Credits is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And I love your guys' feedback. Thank you all for listening so much. I love what I do. I love this show a lot and it wouldn't be what it is today without your guys' generous feedback and time. Next week we'll light the black flame candle and talk about the Halloween classic Hocus Pocus and I want to thank you guys once again for listening today. I'm Gil and as always go catch a movie.